One of the biggest things I realized is if you can give enough value for free in advance of asking to get paid, your credibility can come from that, right? Like in some ways it doesn't matter who you are if the person's already been able to move their life forward or get a result from something they learned from you. Our ever-changing world calls upon the most courageous, resilient, and relentless of us to face its most extraordinary challenges. To help you embark on this journey, we present the Impactful Coaching Podcast, your oasis for inspiration and a beacon to spark the fires of greatness within you. I'm Joseph. I will be your ally in this journey to empower your potential. Join us each week as we dive deep into the heart of ambition, drive, and success to unravel compelling stories of daring leaders who dreamed, struggled, and achieved victory. Our journey begins now. How is everybody doing? This is the Impactful Coaching Podcast. I am your host, Joseph. And once in a while, I might have accidentally said an Impactful Coaches Podcast. So if anybody uh, calls me out on it, feel free to uh, email me a picture of your receipt for a cup of coffee, and I will uh, cover that copy. First come, first serve, by the way. So I am here today with Greg Faxon. It is, as I pretty much always say, I might have <laughs> missed an episode or two, but it is a thrill to be able to uh, learn what I can learn, share what I can share, and be a part of these conversations and feel like I'm helping get the message out there for people who are helping others make their lives a better place. So before we do any of that, just out curiosity, how are you doing today? How are you feeling? Feeling great. It's a beautiful day here in Vermont. Not just to be too much of a, a disservice to the audio listeners, but I do have an admiration for your background. And I don't know if it was intentional, but the shirt that you're wearing uh, lines up with it. Where where exactly are you in is a because it does kind of look like a garage door, but like a postmodern garage door. So what's your what's your environment right now? I'm in my home office, which is in the basement of our house. And this is like a little accent wall. So there's like these little pieces of like plywood and stuff. And we paint it over and the other walls are white. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm facing the door. Every so often, I have an appreciation for because visuals are important. It's about how we uh, convey ourselves to others. <clears throat> I'm I'm in the laundry room because I'm staying at my parents' house for a few days, <laughs> so it was either it was either a white wall or I turn this around and I show people the the, the washing machine, and that's that would wouldn't have been too conducive. But they're 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 nice though. They're not at least turning it on while I work. Um, so usually, what I like to start us off with is what you do and what you're up to. So that's on deck. But I what I thought was interesting when I looked into your your uh, profile is that typically on a Wednesday you actually you, you're not working you're usually going paddle boarding and if I have all my eggs in one basket which I almost never do today is in fact a Wednesday so have you still been consistent with that as a time of the writing do you still find ways to make Wednesday really be your your personal day and I mean thank you for being here on a Wednesday for that matter yeah, that's a good question so I should probably go and update that there was a year, year and a half where Wednesdays were like no work day, four hour work week and our four day work week. <laughs> and I think that that's great. I've mixed up up recently. So what I usually do now is I do Friday afternoons off mm -hmm. um, and then I'll take random days off when I want to take the day off, if that makes sense. Like if there's a powder day and I want to go snowboarding with my buddies and it's like Tuesday, I'll go on Tuesday. Um, but I, these days I'm more like calls 12 and after, and then focused work and free time before noon. So I, I'm always experimenting. I would say like every six to 12 months, like what days, what times do I want to take off and what time do I want to work? And right now I'm just enjoying work. 
Mm-hmm. I'd like to share something you might find interesting because as I am working on my creative endeavor, one of the things I'm working on is a novel and in, a, in this is fantasy society, the days of the week are, it's still seven days, but they've taken on different definitions. And I started actually adopting that into my own lifestyle as much as I can, of course, because things do come up. So I've treated Monday as the, I call it morn day. It's the idea of it's the morning of the week. It's the new start. Good time to reestablish habits, try to really set the week off in the right course. Uh, I know I'm about to go through, I'm not going to go through all of them, but I'll go through a couple of them. Uh, I call Tuesday toils day as in this is the work day. So from like crack of dawn until the sun goes down and you're exhausted, you just work and work and work and work and work. So it's just this like really focused like work day. And then Wednesday we're all stop. And then people can email me if they want to hear the other days, Joseph at impactfulcoachingpodcast.com. Wednesday had the biggest shift for me. I called it Groves Day. It was this idea of this, if you can take it off, take it off, is this idea of having this middle of the week where you can, if you have to do any work, maybe do more like self-reflecting work stuff to see where you're at in the middle of the week, especially after the previous day, which is full wor- workload day. In my in my own world, I'm sort of changing the way I, I view things a little bit because of this, and it's helping actually be giving me a little bit more unique sense of peace because... I'm controlling something that people don't typically see as a means to take control over something. So um, just to throw this back to you as a as a question, uh, what would you say have been some of the most like significant areas where you've been able to control your world in a way that people might not typically see as an opportunity for self-control? Mm. I like that question. and Thank you. You're welcome. I like, I like your model too. I'm just reflecting on that. I feel like when you work for yourself or you're doing a creative endeavor, you sort of have to create those little structures. They can change. Like I used to think like, I just want to lock in, like, what should I be doing each day? What's the perfect work routine and the perfect hour by hour. But as soon as I'd lock it in, like something would shift or I would change. And then, so that's not the point. I don't think is finding the one thing. I think for me, like 25 focused hours per week is probably, you know, the average of what I shoot for. And that stays consistent. Recently, one of the things I've been thinking a lot about, I was, I was actually interviewing Rebecca Tracy of the uncaged life. And we were talking a little bit about how your motivation ebbs and flows, I think for all humans and entrepreneurs in our case. And, but sometimes we try to have consistency, almost like it's, we are a machine, consistent output. So I think one of the things that's changed for me is allowing myself to work more when I feel more inspired and motivated and work less when I don't, which is a little bit contrary to if you're just working a 40 hour work week as an employee. So mm-hmm. we're coming off Labor Day weekend. Like I worked Labor Day just because I wanted to work. I didn't have any other plans, Yeah. but if, you know, next Monday I have something else I want to do, or I'm not feeling inspired to work and I don't have anything on the calendar, then I won't work. And so questioning some of those holidays, I will say you can do this a little bit too much as an entrepreneur. If you have total freedom, you can be like, well, there's no weekends and there's no work days. At the end of the day, like I want to spend time with other people and most other people follow a general template. So I actually stay pretty close to the nine to five Monday through Friday template because it gives me some structure and it means that when I have time off, I'm not alone. I'm actually able to do stuff with friends. I agree with that. A couple of things that I want to say, and then we'll sink more into like the, the, the coaching side of this because it's this coaching podcast, but so it's important to try to have fun, keep things organic. 
so what I find about the 40 hour work week is that having been in it from time to time, the 25 hours is actually more accurate in terms of how much work is actually done. Those remaining, what, 15 hours, I think. There's, it's either going to the washroom or getting coffee or, or socializing, all of which things they do improve the work experience. And I think that improves the productivity of those 25 hours. Whereas I think if you only brought people in to an office for 25 hours, made them only work those 25 hours and then sent them home. I think we would actually get a lot of people who just stick around anyways, because, well, I'm here. I might as well you know, take a moment to, uh, to talk to people or, or, or yeah, socialize or um, maybe I, this was an hour long task. Maybe I need two hours for it. Uh, and then I also agree with because so much of society is structured a certain way. And I don't think it's it's done without reason or without cause. Like, for instance, the, the nine to five premise is based off the fact that our circadian rhythm on average is you get up early in the morning because you want to be exposed to the sun. And so by the time you're done work and you go home for the day, it gets darker. And so you can be restful. So, oh, I mean, a lot of these structures, they, they come from good intentions. It's just one thing that I think a lot of people realize in school is that you get like some people who can go through system and institutions the way they're designed. Some people don't. They end up as entrepreneurs. They end up as um, artists. They end up as well, any any number of uh, variants on how uh, the way society is structured. What that brings up for me is I'm a big fan of choosing that work that you're going to do in the first 60 to 90 minutes of the workday and really nailing that and then allowing the rest to be proactive. And I know in some ways that's common sense productivity advice, but if you want to spend less time working and make more money as an entrepreneur, obviously it's not based on time. It's based on the results that you're getting. So really choosing a task that makes you a little nervous or it's, it's a revenue generating activity. It's a proactive revenue generating activity and spending the first hour of your day doing that. Because if you, if you can win that, Typically, the rest is the sales calls that you've already booked from the previous focused work or the the client calls you're going to take anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's where I try to set my intention is on that first hour mm-hmm. of the day. Yeah, and and for what it's worth, uh, the recordings that I typically do are typically within that morning area because it's it's one thing to check emails or to edit content. It's it's another thing to meet somebody for the first time, have a great conversation, trying to make it as valuable as possible. So yeah, there's, I mean, full, you know, cards on the table. It, it can be nerve wracking at times. Um, so that's why, that's how I've been able to align it along those lines. With that, let's, uh, let's shift gears. Uh, let's jump into the meat of the matter today. So would you kindly just get the audience a rundown of what you do, what you're up to these days? Yes. My name is Greg Faxon. I help coaches fill their client roster and then scale up from there. Most of the clients I'm working with these days, one-on-one, already making about 10K per month in revenue, and they want to get to 20K per month and beyond from there. So at that point, a lot of times they have a lot of one-on-one clients. They have a full roster, and they're looking at how do I scale this up by raising my prices, courses, group programs, getting more leads. Um, A lot of the work I'm known for, because my free content is going to cater towards the biggest audience, which is beginners, things like niching, um, figuring out your packaging as a coach all of that. Cause I remember when I started, I got totally stuck on that stuff. I started my coaching business. I was 22 or 23. My first job out of college, I was doing market research and consulting and I liked marketing, but I just didn't feel the impact that we were having with like these larger clients. I wanted more fulfillment in my work and I also wanted more autonomy. Like we were talking about controlling your schedule. That was important to me. 
And so like having to start off as a 22, 23 year old life coach and trying to get people to take you seriously. Um, that's when I had to figure out marketing. And, and one of the biggest things I realized is if you can give enough value for free in advance of asking to get paid, your credibility can come from that, right? Like in some ways it doesn't matter who you are if the person's already been able to move their life forward or get a result from something they learned from you. So free workshops, blog posts, stuff like that. And, and content has become a big part of my marketing over the years and a big part of what I teach now. Fortunately, now I have a little more credibility, a little more uh, like results, but I think that, um, yeah, that's, that's the big thing that I would encourage folks is not looking to get clients necessarily, but looking to, um, figure out what they could provide those clients in advance that would give them the credibility when they did have that sales call. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to uh, delve into this a little bit because having worked with a lot of clients, especially in the podcast space, I've seen the right mindset and I've seen the the wrong mindset and I do objectively say that it's wrong and I don't want to call out anybody in specific and in either positive or negative because if I start saying who are all the positive ones people can by process of elimination figure out what the negative ones are so I'm not going there but the right way I found people were doing it were saying we know we're not going to necessarily make a lot of money if any money on this but we are providing knowledge and value to others like what you're what you're saying so over time even if it's a matter of people will come from a place of gratitude and want to say, look, man, I just, you've been providing such great content for such a long time. He, uh, here's, I'm going to buy your book, sign up for your business as a way of thanking you. Or, or that's an element of it. And it's also an element of I'm ready to now move to that next step, which takes a lot more nuance and a lot more specificity, which I'm not going to find from just free content online. Now I actually need to engage on that personal level whether that is the person directly, such as you, or it's the network that has been built up around or the community that has built up around you. And then on the other side of it, I, I've seen people who, as happy as they are to do a podcast and as much as the podcast does provide value, it was very self-celebratory where it was a lot of like, that's what makes this podcast so great while having that conversation with the guest, taking time away from actually providing value to the audience and just putting so much time into talking about how much the person values doing it and then wondering, well, hang on a second, I'm not getting any ROI on this. I'm like, well, yeah, because you didn't provide, you didn't provide very much value and the value you did provide, you didn't distribute onto social media platforms for people who are not going to listen to the full episode or can only be sold on maybe a couple of minutes. So I'm, I've got a question chambered, but I'll stop for a second in case you had any reaction to that. I would just say document your learnings give away your best stuff for free. And then like you said, charge for the implementation. With marketing, I was, I, I briefly flashed back to the idea of like <laughs> of breakfast cereals for, for kids. And we would see a commercial and let's just say like Fruit Loops, for instance, I'm not saying anything bad about Fruit Loops. So that's why I'm happy to just mention them. And the, the cartoon commercials could be very entertaining and uh, exciting for kids. And that, of course, increases the chances that the kids are going to want to buy Fruit Loops as opposed to, say, like no-name colored cereal circles, which taste-wise are basically the same, maybe a little different, but the difference is the attachment that the uh, kid has to the product. And in, in marketing and even in, in commercials, 
my understanding is that there still needs to be that value, whether it's just 30 seconds of entertainment or it's just bright colors, it's uh, it's a joke or some sort of uh, information. As long as you're providing that value, then that will intrinsically link the consumer to the product. So what I'm interested in hearing about from your experience at that time is, did you come across certain marketing strategies that we're not providing value and we're really just looking to extract value. And so what might've been a way for them to perhaps align their advertising or their commercials in a way that was more effective at providing something for the audience first before asking for the sale. I'd first say that I'm not sure that all marketing has to provide value to be effective. If, okay. if you're just doing brand advertising, it's not necessarily providing value to me in my mind to see a fruit loops commercial, but it may make the kid more likely to pick that one up on the shelf, just pure exposure. You're building a brand. So if we're talking about something like content marketing, obviously the main way that works to build credibility and authority and spread, spread awareness is through creating something that's helpful. I think a good example of something that doesn't provide a lot of value. That's hard. If you're starting out as a coach uh, is just like direct direct messaging or really cold reach outs. Direct messaging can work if it's warm. Um, but let's say if you sent 50 emails to someone who you thought was your target client, no warm introduction, nothing, literally just selling the service. Hey, we have, let's say it's like, hey, we have this podcast production service. Um, it's X dollars a month. Do you want to hire us? At a certain volume, that actually will work. If you reached out to 100 people a day, for a year, you'd actually have a good business probably. I just don't think it's the best ROI on your time because not a lot of value is provided to someone who doesn't have any reason to trust you anyway. So a better way to do that would be to be getting introductions or actually having a conversation with someone to help them diagnose what's going on or what they really need. Um, so they get some <clears throat> they get some clarity before they've actually asked been asked if they want to work with you. Um, so more of a conversation as opposed to like a spam, I think would be a good example. That's something that I've helped um, some of my clients with is just the idea of when you're reaching out to people, the first step is to be a trusted advisor or just try to understand what are your concerns. And for us, specifically, it's media. What are your media concerns? Do you? We don't need you to, to talk you into understanding the power of media. Pretty much every company on the planet, whether you're specifically in the B2B space or you're uh, selling a mix to customers as well as other businesses, you have to have something. So it stands to reason that if you do have to have something, it should be a focus on providing value to others. And so it didn't occur to me that like, yeah, if you send a hundred messages out every day, by the end of the year, you'll have gotten some business out of it. So it, it definitely does work. It's just a matter of like, you're saying like, do you have the resources for it? Are there even enough clients in your niche to half that many uh, uh, reach outs. So th that's some important stuff to keep in mind. And I, how I wanna tie this into how your story developed is at, at 22, you have marketing knowledge that comes with you. So being able to, you had some inherent understanding of how to position yourself uh, in, in the market, but, you're, but 22 is still uh, pretty young too. So could you talk about some of the uh, limiting beliefs that you were facing as it related to your age and your experience at the time? One limiting belief, I guess you could call it that, was just that life coaching was silly or, or coaching in general was people wouldn't take it seriously as something that I wanted to do. So there was sort of that plus 
me in particular, I wouldn't be taken seriously because I was young. So it was like some shame around life coaching in general. And then there was my age within that. I was like, well, people won't feel like I can provide that much just because I haven't lived a lot of life. So I guess those were limiting beliefs. It's interesting because I don't, I don't even know if it's useful to like get over those limiting beliefs. Like my wife and I were at a dinner with friends last night and I was talking about what someone asked me what I did. And I was like, well, I help coaches build their business and I help them learn marketing and sales. They get more clients. The person was like, oh, you're like a coach for coaches. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. And then we were like joking around some of my guy friends about like, is it a pyramid scheme or like there's coaches, coaching <laughs> coaches. And I was just like having fun with it. But I left and I was like, oh, I feel kind of like, I was talking to my wife. I was like, I felt kind of embarrassed. Like sometimes no one, it's a weird thing. Like no one really understands what I do unless they are a coach or they just understand the industry. Um, in some ways, that's a sign of a good niche is like, if unless they're your target client, they probably don't exactly understand what you do. Um, but I think I probably still have some of those same insecurities but the difference is like, it, it doesn't matter because either way, those people aren't my clients. Either way, I'm still getting leads every day. I'm getting applications every week for my coaching because I'm putting out content and I've built an audience. So yeah, it's interesting as I reflect on this, like I probably had a limiting belief around coaching or my age. As long as you keep taking the actions though, or you keep creating the content or doing the marketing, it almost doesn't matter what your beliefs are, which I know flies in the face of some of the mindset coaching that people have had. Um, it's only a problem if it stops you from doing anything. And with the clients that you work with, I get the impression that you, a lot of them are people just starting out because as people get more developed in their career and reach that uh, intermediate state and reach that expert state where they have maybe uh, 10 years under their belt, they've got their business running. So maybe how to develop things is more about drilling down into the finer details, but it's not so much like the broad sweeping issues that have really kept somebody from advancing from like, I don't know, 4K to 5K, 5K to 6K. So in order for me to ask this question properly, the first thing that I just want to confirm is like, how would you describe your, your client base? Is it a lot of beginners? Is it a mix of beginners, intermediate experts? Clients that I'm working with one-on-one -on -one these days, I are almost all at 10K plus per month and scaling up. Um, it's it's a big investment to work with me. So you kind of need to, you need to be at a certain level already and be working from there. Now we have courses and stuff like that that people buy who are starting out. In my mind, it's actually those, those initial steps, while they can be scary and overwhelming, they're straightforward. Like you, there's basically just a few things that you got to do to get to five to 10K. So um, if you learn how to market yourself, how to sell, and you have something to sell, you have an offer, you're pretty much good up until that point. So a lot of my audience are newer coaches and they're starting out and they're making less than 5K a month. A lot of my free content supports those folks with the idea being if they implement it, they've proven to themselves and to me that it works and that they can take action. And then at 10K plus we work together. So yeah, so based off the the clientele that you are working with, again, I just want to spend a little more time hearing about what are some of the, I guess, the roadblocks, whether they're fiscal roadblocks or their or their mental roadblocks, and at, at the the different uh, levels that you are working with. Yeah, so I'll start with the one on one clients who are making six figures in revenue and scaling up from there. That may not be as relevant to your audience if it's mostly beginners. So I'm happy to backtrack from there. Okay, well I appreciate that. We it's a it's a mix for us. Okay, so 
for folks who are at 10K in revenue or more per month, the bottleneck becomes their time. Before then, you typically have a lot of time and you don't have money. So once you hit 10K plus, you should have a decent roster of clients. You're either full up with your one-on-one -on -one practice or you're nearing full. And so the constraint now is I don't have more time to service customers, so I can't grow. And so this is when it makes sense to start looking into a few things. One, raising rates, which require better sales skills, also potentially putting more into your offer. There's courses, there's group programs, things that you can get a little more uh, out of the time that you have. Um, there's also just things like hiring a virtual assistant. There's things like most people who get to 10K per month from coaching, they got there from like quitting things and starting new stuff. So like they quit their job and they started something new and then they got rewarded for it. So like, okay, it's good to quit and start something new. By the time they reach 10K, they, they have multiple things they're trying to sell. They have multiple like niches they're trying to serve. It becomes too complex. So there's that phrase like, what is it? Fancy fails, simple scales. So at 10K plus, you actually just want to narrow stuff down and figure out what's working for me. What are my profitable offers? What are the, what's the one or two avatars that I can serve and really narrowing in, simplifying stuff to grow. So usually it comes down to helping people focus, helping people get more out of their time at that stage. Cool. I haven't asked this uh, one lately. So I'm drawing this one from some of the experience that I've had in e-commerce where uh, a lot of the people that I talked to, they they ran into the time resource problem as well, where it stopped being practical to have one-on-one -on -one co uh, coaching with, with clients. And because a lot of, now mind you, this is e-commerce, e so there is a high degree of technicality to it that arguably I don't think is, is sorry, I, I'm not trying to like put down the, the coaching, but coaching brings in a lot more emotionality, brings in a lot more spirituality. So there's more of a mix of technique as well as mindset uh, in, in that space. So there is some very important, very specific technical things that have to be accomplished in, in e-commerce. And so what a lot of them found is it, it makes more sense for me to run cor online courses, to do mastermind groups, try to work with people in aggregate and rather than always working with one-on-one -on -one. and I feel like that's a little bit more challenging to do in the coaching space because it is a lot about personal connection and it is a lot about seeing a person's growth and championing that growth and also receiving some of that growth too in order to continue to uh, advance your own life the whole student becomes a teacher uh, idea so has that been a challenge for you and even some of your clients is how to continue justifying working in the one-on-one -on -one space when it can be more resource friendly to work with uh, mastermind groups and do more multiple group sessions? I'm glad we're talking about this. That's actually cool. a myth that I, I want to bust, which is that you have to, you really can't grow a, a good business on one-on-one. -on -one. Like that you really have to have these passive income sources or you have to have these group programs. You can absolutely do that. Like I've made a lot of money with groups. My clients have made a lot of money with groups. Courses are a little bit sometimes shinier from the outside. I mean, we do probably like 2K a month in for our course. It's sold like on an evergreen funnel. So I don't put any time in. It's a totally DIY course. So it's nice to have that passive income, but like that's, you know, less than 10% of my revenue. So 
I think that you really need some big, big audience numbers to make that work to hit your income goals. If you have a huge audience, absolutely sell a course. Um, group programs, high-end group programs can kind of be a nice middle way where technically you're you're still time for money. So you're you're still capped to a certain extent, and except if you start hiring team coaches and stuff like that. It can be easier said than done. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily more profitable to do group. Um, right now we do six figures in profit um, and one-on-one -on -one is basically the main thing that I do. We do have a team coach who helps with some implementation with clients. So that's a little way where I can get leverage with the one-on-one. -on -one. But if you have a niche that supports high enough pricing, right? Like each client of mine pays me 15K for six months. It doesn't take that much to be making really good money. And the profit margins are a lot better because I'm not paying for all this infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, if you were a, like I'm working with a client right now and she's a parenting coach, but she works with moms. Like there's only so much she's going to charge for that niche, right? So we have her doing a group program. Um, that's 997. So I think you got to match your price point to your niche. But if you can choose a high ticket niche and stay with one-on-one -on -one for as long as you possibly can, that's going to be your simplest. And it's going to be your most profitable business model because you can charge the most for it. Um, but when you need to get leverage, depending on if you if you want to build a seven figure business, it can be done with one-on-one -on -one. people have done it, but it's going to get hard without leverage vehicles. The point that you brought up was probably was, was what I wanted to follow up on where again, comparing to the e-commerce background, the one thing that they all had in common is that everyone wants to scale their business. Everybody wants to increase their profit margins. The niches, the niches change for some people it's sporting goods for some people it's things that you put on your face to keep your skin from aging. It was, it was a wide range of niches, but everything had to sell. And what you were saying about the, the, the parenting coach is that some of the people that you're helping, I mean, they just don't have the capital for it, but their needs are still valid. And so how to scale your operation based off of understanding when you have to deal with volume, just because there is a limit to how much money you can charge versus volume is actually getting in your way and you want to minimize that volume because you really need to focus on people who are probably, I use the word status a lot because I think it's fair, are high status, dealing with high pressure situations, um, their impact in the world is, can end up affecting the lives of tens of thousands, if not millions of people. So being, you need to focus on on those when it makes sense to. When in doubt, choose choose a niche that you can charge more for. Mm -hmm. A bigger A bigger problem that like people who have money have uh, that's it's going to get you a lot further before you have to worry about scale vehicles. So all things being equal, those are better niches to choose leadership, executive coaching, business coaching, some types of performance coaching. When we're getting into stuff like being a parenting coach or a dating coach, or even like I did, I had a weight loss coaching business and you can charge good money for it because it's a painful problem. But it's not mm -hmm. on the level of business coaching because I'm not going to, I can't double your income, you know, when I do it. So, but, but all things aren't equal. Like this client we're working with who's a parenting coach, that's her labor of love. That's what she wants to do. So you got to choose something that you enjoy. Uh, but for those who are still kind of finding their way, or maybe they're more niche agnostic, they're like, I have this skill. I feel like I could apply it in different ways or I'm credible in different domains then yeah, choosing a higher ticket niche is going to be much easier. Do you by any chance have a client example of someone who thought they were not going to get out of their particular niche and then 
it, it turns out that there is a way that you can pivot into something that would uh, raise your revenue? Oh man, that's a good question. You're making me want to look. Um, <laughs> I've had a ton of clients, especially like when I was working more with coaches early on that were, that pivot all the time. I mean, almost everyone pivots on their niche once or twice from the start of the business. Oh, we had, this is a great example. So um, my client, Grace, uh, Grace Broder, she, she was doing totally fine when she came to me. I mean, she had, she was making probably 16K a month on average when she came to me. She's a performance coach. She works specifically with procrastination and productivity. So like she gathered a big TikTok audience of people who are like perfectionists, who are like, I, or creatives are like, I can't get done the thing I want to get done. And a lot of her content was like, how, why do we avoid these hard tasks? And how do you get yourself to actually do these things that you've been avoiding? She had a more general audience when she came to me. It was still the same problem, productivity, but if you're solving a problem for like a stay-at-home mom who's procrastinating on uh, like taking her kids to the park or something, like that's an important problem. We all want to be good parents, but there's only so much that person's going to pay for that personal solution. Mm -hmm. um, so over the course of working together and afterwards, she built a program, a more advanced program specifically for entrepreneurs. Because if you're procrastinating as an entrepreneur, like you're losing a lot of money. So that's a bigger problem. All she did, same niche in a way, all she did was choose a target market where that solving that problem is worth more and you can charge a lot more for it. So that program was a much higher end program that added a lot of profit compared to her mass market program. And would you say it's fair that her prior experience helped build up that authority and that confidence in order to um, be able to work in the higher revenue generating niche? Yeah, because at this point, she had a successful business herself. Also, she's not marketing herself as a business coach, right? So she right. just they just have to trust that she knows about productivity and that she knows about procrastination and the psychology of it. Um, So that's an important differentiation. Even if she was doing a business, at this point, she could be a really highly paid business coach as he's, she had a 110K month while working with me. So she's, she's, a, she's a beast. But um, I think that's important. You can work with leaders or business owners, which are higher tier niches, higher end niches, but you don't have to necessarily be helping with leadership or business. You could choose something to help them with that you are very credible in. Mm -hmm. I think that's a mistake people make sometimes. They're like, all right, it seems like the people who are making a lot of money are working with entrepreneurs, which is true. So they're like, I'll just be a business coach. But it's like, well, you are, you're only making 1K a month. So you don't, you, you might be a great coach, but you don't yet have the skills or credibility where someone's going to trust you enough uh, to pay you a lot of money to help them unless you're beyond them in some way. But there may be another skill that you have um, that you could help folks with. That's what I did when I started out. I was doing like high performance coaching and I was working with a lot of entrepreneurs. That was like my second or third niche. Um, and people would be like, how much are you making? Like, I want to make, if, if you're making more than me, I want to work with you. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really matter how much we're making because I'm not helping you as a business coach, right? Like you're telling me X, Y, Z things that are preventing you from performing well and their mindset challenges. That's what we're going to work on. So the next thing that I wanted to ask you about, about all this, and frankly, I'm surprised that I haven't brought this up yet, but that's one, one thing that I learned from talking to another media expert on the Web3 podcast that I'm fingers crossed we want to get started again as soon as 
<clears throat> as soon as we have the resources for it, was the idea that um, quantity is your quality. So you might think that, oh, if I just focus on only doing things when they're ready, it, it'll be good when it's a matter of like, if you're really gonna get good at something, you do gotta do it. You gotta put out 100 episodes or 10,000 hours or whatever the equivalency of it is. So for that, that's why I'm self-reflecting like, oh, that's why I didn't think of this question before because I didn't think of it. Because I mean, I can only do so many episodes before a question comes to me. But what I wanna ask you about is um, the, the negative feedback or, or pushback that clients have in working with the coaches. So let me let me draw a comparison here. I like to refer to things like mechanic garage because I always like to try to focus on something that's very tangible that we can visualize in our head easily. So for instance, someone brings a car to the garage, needs a bunch of things fixed. Those things are fixed. A week goes by, something breaks down, goes back to the mechanic garage by way of a tow truck and says, uh, look, here's the things that went wrong. You said you're gonna fix them. If they're, they're good, if they're professional, they apologize, they correct the mistakes, and they ease some of the future burdens, maybe a discount down the line or whatever. How does a coach respond to negative feedback from the client when the client feels like they're not getting the results? And you know, how do you, how do you find the tangible reasons why? How do you figure out what did I do, what did I fail as a coach versus what the client do in, in failing the system that was laid out for them? It's hard to distinguish mm-hmm. uh, who owns the results and who's responsible for what part of it. The best thing you can do is proactively have a good agreement and contract and not just something that's legally is like actually saying, here's what I'm responsible for. Here's what you're responsible for. And here, what, here's what you can expect in terms of results. Um, I actually have a, a whole article on the site where I walk through like what sections you should include. And I have a Google doc template. So if you want, Uh, I can get that to you and we can link people to it. But I think setting the foundation is the most important part because what you're speaking to in a client dissatisfied, it means their expectations haven't been met. So if we're not aligned on expectations, there's much more room for a disagreement, um, which is why we have an agreement. So I think that's number one. Number two is, I mean, if you've been a coach for any amount of time, you've had a client that's upset at you or frustrated. So, um, the the best thing that you can do or the best thing that I found for me to do is to take a step back and not take it personally and like really get curious. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate when clients tell me something that they're not happy with. Because if, you, if you're not hearing that, then you don't really have a real relationship. Right? Like if, you have a, if you have a friend and you're never giving each other constructive feedback or you're never able to get angry at someone or frustrated, you don't really have enough trust in the relationship is what it means. Appreciating the feedback that you're getting. I think you, and then I guess third thing is finding that middle way between um, like if one side of the spectrum is you own all of it, like a client is frustrated and you're very like, this is all on me. And I guess there could be situations where they say something specific, like you said you were going to charge my card for the second payment next week and you charged it today. It's right. like, that's my fault. I screwed up. In most conversations where a client's frustrated about the engagement as a whole or the results, there's some shared responsibility. So you could say, oh, it's all on me and you could take it all on yourself or you could put it all back on the client. And this is very common too, like in some higher end, like group programs that can be more like churn and burn style. It's like, well, if you're frustrated at the program or you're not getting results, you obviously don't have the right mindset because other people are getting results. So this is actually your fault and it's a limiting belief <laughs> that you have. And then you kind of ended up getting like yeah. gaslit a little bit. Um, 
So finding that, that place of like, what is the thing specifically, what is your request of me that I do differently? And then also here's my request of you, because I have other clients who are having similar sessions and they may respond differently. Like I noticed that we had this action last week and you didn't take the action. That's one thing that's going to get you to the results sooner. One thing that I also want to add to this too, and, and I think one of the core takeaways is, you know, do your due diligence, have your paperwork and, and have your system in place so that you can always compare the experience you're having with one client to your other clients as well and say, well, look, here's what happens when we implement this with person B, person C, person D. We've implemented this with you with person A. Here's what we think is going wrong. Here's what I think might be going wrong on your end. So that is all valid. And the thing that I want to add, I, I've mentioned this on the, on an episode, probably like six or seven podcasts ago, just about the idea of Karen culture, where now there's this fearfulness of giving that constructive feedback as a client or as a customer. So the example that I use is if I go to a restaurant, I order a burger, burger doesn't come out so good, but I don't want to be seen as difficult. So I just say, oh, you know, it was great. And then I've just made that product worse or I've kept it from being better for the next 10 people. And although taste is subjective, I think you can tell when something was just not made well because it'll make a person stick. So the question that I'm getting at with this is, let's say a client, for instance, or a customer is potentially listening to this. We're largely B2B, but you never know. How does someone give the right kind of feedback to coaches and how does someone be able to personally assess here were my failings versus here were the issues that were uh, on behalf of the coach? I think you just raise it directly. Like I, I almost think like it's one of those things sometimes we'll ask, like, how do I do this thing? And the answer is like, well, you just do it. <laughs> how do I give this feedback to the like... coach? It's like, well, you just tell them what your feedback is. I mean, I'm I'm starting up with my coach again. We worked together for six months, took a pause. We're starting back up on Friday. And he was like a pain in the butt to schedule with. Um, he's a I love him. Obviously, we're working together again, but his availability is extremely limited. So when I signed back right. on, we couldn't find a time. My assistant couldn't find a time for like over 30 days. So I'm like, well, then why why are we even starting this month then? So I think one thing to do is probably have a conversation, not do it over email. And I'm planning to just say, hey, um, you know, when I noticed, I think a good, a good framework for this is nonviolent communication. So people can look up that overall script for like having difficult conversations, but it would be something like, hey, when I saw that you didn't have availability for 30 days out, it made me feel frustrated or I felt frustrated because, you know, I'm paying you a lot of money and I want to be able to see you each month. Um, it made me feel like maybe we should have waited to start back up. And my request would just be that you have more times available I can choose from so we can work together. I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the funny thing for me is that the nature of that question speaks to the problem of overthinking something when in a lot of cases it's just, no, just, just be honest, just be transparent about what's bothering you. And then we'll dig in from there and see if like, is that the surface issue or is there something deeper going on, which has been a very common theme on the program. Uh, just a quick aside. So I had to confront a friend about not one issue, but several issues that it all interconnected with each other. And it basically took me the whole summer to prepare for the conversation. I have this belief in life that people are either rock, paper, or scissors. And I believe that I am a paper. So and what I what I did was I, I wrote down my issues on a document. And then I wrote down what I think he's going to say in response. So I was trying to anticipate because I know him well enough. Paper, scissors. I, I'm incredibly curious about this now. What is rock, paper, scissors, people? So the idea that um, if you have if you have three friends, 
chances are one has a slight conversational edge over each other. So a per- we have one person, a scissors personality might be someone who's more aggressive and more just like cuts into someone directly, pardon the pun. Um, rock tends to be more blunt and tends to be also also direct, but not more like bruising rather than bleeding. Um, and paper the question and the sort of like the, the mythology behind rock, paper, scissors is in this fight to the death between something that can kill you through blunt force and something that can kill you through stabbing. How does paper even stand a chance in all of this? And the answer <laughs> is by being prepared. Paper beats rock by sitting down and thinking through how the conversation is going to go, anticipating what rock is going to do and just smothering rock with, with the information. And that was how I, uh, how I viewed it. It doesn't work against scissors because scissors would just cut through all your preparation and just say, well, you just just kind of be an asshole. So that's how I, that's how I view it. For instance, like if I had a problem, if my, I kind of view my friend as a rock. And so I'm like, okay, I know that it, it, if I just go in unprepared, I'm not going to win even if I am paper. But if I do go in prepared and I think about this conversation carefully, carefully and I try to figure out what he's going to say, then it will go a little bit more in, in my favor, or at least we'll be able to make more peace that way. And then if I try to do be prepared for my friend who's a scissors, it just wouldn't matter because you just feel like, what did you, you're just, they just don't follow the same conversational rules. That's why scissors beats paper. Is, did you come up with this? Yes. Yes, I did. I love this concept. And I feel like I'm imagining <laughs> like a free quiz to get leads of like, what is your conflict style? Mm-hmm. Rock, paper, scissors. The the thing for me was that like I I have a very difficult time when I confront people because my cortisol levels spike through the roof, and and I start to get very emotional and I focus more on like trying to make peace rather than trying to resolve the issue, and then that's when I realized that if I just take my if I my strength is that I am a writer I I have a creative mind so if I deploy that in advance of something and I prepare for it I have a much better chance of. Uh, being ready to deal with something rather than just kind of like improvising and being on the fly. And and I would also argue to just, you know, not some of this is contextual. If I'm in one group of friends, I might be the paper, but in another group of friends, I might be the rock. And in another group of friends, I might be the scissors. So we do have all of that within us, but I do think we all have like a natural disposition to one over the others. And I've I mean, I've been trying to be a writer, so there's a, there's a lot to justify me considering myself paper. It's obviously not an ego thing because, you know, you could be much more ego-driven and call yourself a scissors if you're scissors people. I like it. Well, I'm happy to, I'm happy to hear that feedback. Um, we, we are closing in on the, on the hour, and I, I did have one other – well, actually, I have like 12 other questions here, but – the life of being a paper. So what I wanted to ask you, and just so you know, I have no in belief that like any one person can fairly answer this. This is just purely for fun. How would you describe like the world of coaching if you had to put people into groups the same way we put food into groups? Because we have dairy, we got grains, we got vegetables, we got meats. And so there's there's ways that everything is divided. Is there a clear like holistic way that you can kind of describe the the coaching space in its entirety again very difficult question but uh, have fun with it see what we can do and it doesn't have to actually be as food groups right we're just you just use that as an example of how exactly that's just the way that i think that could be a very quirky fun question but i would need even more time for that Mm -hmm. um okay so i i'd probably break it off by niches 
probably, probably how I would segment the coaching world if we're talking mm -hmm. about types of coaches. So there's like biggest groups would be B2B or B2C. And then within those, there's a bunch of, I, I, I usually think about it like there's like 10 niches. I'm not going to remember them all now, but we got like business coaching, executive coaching, health coaching, relationship coaching, like all of those, right? Um, that's probably how I'd group it. Um, you could also group it by, there's people who help coaches with their business. There's the coaches themselves. There's people who help coaches become better coaches, like the certifications, the training agencies, and then there's the clients. So I don't know, there's like a million ways that you could group it. Those are what, that's what comes to mind. I, I think it's the start of a way to, I think, help the ecosystem become more clear, which I think might not that I'm saying that's a problem, but any way to add clarity to it, I think it might help people understand where they might be able to uh, fit into the space. Uh, because anybody who could do coaching could should, probably should look into it because you never know whose lives you're going to impact and what change you're going to make. Um, incidentally, I actually did take the quiz online myself just out of uh, curiosity. So just a the niche quiz. Yeah, the niche quiz. What do you got? Uh, just give me one second. I just want to look through which one. Um, so I got a pure life coach. So so because I, I looked at lists and it was a lot of like uh, health and fitness or, or business productivity or trauma. I'm like, yep, trauma. Here we go. So but just to add, if, uh, I guess, add a little bit more context to this, as I mentioned to you before we were recording and the frequency of which I'm going to mention this will increase as time goes on is it is tempting to consider myself a potential coach. How can I not? I'm sorry. I'm just talking to coaches. uh you know, day after day, it's just, just going to happen. Right. Where I saw, if I were to coach anybody on anything, it would probably be media because I've been doing media for 10 years. I know it ex exceptionally well. So there wasn't really like, um, a way to uh, tailor my answers to see how close I can get to that. Cause obviously there's a lot of different niches. There's no one, a, a quiz that encapsulates everything would take like a day to do so we're obviously not going to go there the pure life coach is the one that i ended up getting i guess the first question just to add some fun to this is if you were to take that quiz which one would you have gotten i almost always get business coach sometimes i get performance coach like productivity mindset mm -hmm. you know, that type of thing i it's interesting you bring this up i mean obviously this is like a short we kept the quiz super short yeah there's only so much you can cover I would argue like, it, and you didn't say this, but media really isn't a niche because like a niche is a problem that you're solving. So you could use media within the business coaching space. You could use media to help people get more leads. You could help media to help people close more sales. I'd actually argue with podcasting, it's really not that great for getting leads, but it's good for closing sales, for nurturing a warm audience. Mm -hmm. um, you could use media as a career coach to help people get a career in media. Um, you could help people like become, you know, better public speakers, right? So it's like, what's the skill set you're going to apply to a problem? The problem is, is the niche. Um, and it could be too that like those questions about life coaching, those are just more what you're passionate about, what you're interested in. You may have more experience or expertise on one side, and then you have something that is you know, really intriguing to you. And that can be tough for people too. of like, do I do the thing that I have expertise in or do I do the thing that I'm ex mm -hmm. most excited about right now? Mm -hmm. Well, in, in similar, in a similar way that your, your marketing expertise helped you early on your platform and obviously still helps you to this day. Whereas like me, like for me, my ex expertise would give me an edge in getting my message out there, but figuring out what to coach people in specific 
could potentially be a, a different area. So it's something that I'm thinking about. I'm not in a rush to do it because you know, I spent 10 years uh, in media, uh, so I'm not inclined to pivot. It's just a matter of like, can I fit this in an interesting way? So I'll, I'll leave it at that. In my B2B podcasting experience, I worked with e-commerce for about a year and a half, and I worked with Web3, which again, fingers crossed, can't wait to start up again. And what I learned in both fields, and I've, I've learned things in both fields, and I've slowly integrated into my life. Um, e-commerce can be cost prohibitive because you do have to spend a lot of money on ads. So what do people need to start coaching? Like what resources should people be aware of, time to invest, capital to invest? What would you say are the basics that people need to start? Not a lot. I mean, that's one of the nice things about coaching. It's a low barrier to entry. The only thing that you need is like a smartphone, I guess. It's the only thing you actually need because that would allow you to to have calls, to take payments, and then you're pretty much good. I mean, having an LLC is nice, but it's not required at the beginning. Tax-wise, you can just do it as sole proprietor income. You don't have that same protection. But if you're only working with like four clients one-on-one, like unless you're an asshole, that yeah. shouldn't, <laughs> there shouldn't be that much that goes wrong. I would say base level would be phone. Next level up would be like LLC, some sort of payment processor, even if it's just PayPal or Stripe. And website or social media profile, either one would be fine. So I would probably say that's the next level. Mm-hmm. And there's like, you can expand way out to like, now we spend $1,000 a month on various tools and, and software. But yeah, you don't really don't need that much to get started. I mean, I would say the, in terms of time and money and expertise, I mean, you need something that you're, you need some, ideally you have some result you've gotten in your life that others are envious of and they mm-hmm. want your help to, to do it for themselves. It's very hard if you have nothing, if you've been living under a rock, you have nothing that you've accomplished, it's gonna be, you can kind of fake it till you make it, but it's gonna be hard to really support people in the right way and, and be taken seriously. Um, you obviously need time, building a business takes time. I would say you need, you can basically bootstrap it, but you need enough money to be able to live on until you're making money from the coaching. So for me, like when I left my consulting job, I just wanted like three high-end clients, like three high-end long-term clients. And that was enough for me to quit my job and do it full time. Cause I was like, if I can get three, I can get more. Mm-hmm. I, I probably would have waited a little bit longer knowing what I know now. Um, I feel like in some ways I got lucky and it, and stuff did take off, but, um, I had a runway of like almost a year saved up of living expenses at that point. And what would you say are some of the challenges that you're facing nowadays? Uh, and that could relate to say like, we wish I was ranking a little higher on Google or I wish our, our social media or our, uh, video content or podcast content got more reach. Anything along those lines, what would you say are your challenges over the course of the next five years? Uh, the challenge that's always a challenge is just staying in my lane and just staying focused and not getting distracted. So the biggest challenge for any entrepreneur is going to be like, especially when stuff starts working, they'll be like, well, this is good, but this other type of business, or if I launch this other product within the business, it always looks better. Like the grass always looks greener because you see the cool parts of it. You don't see the shit that you're going to have to figure out. Right. And the time it's going to fracture your energy and your focus. So like we talked about helping people scale up, a big part of it is not saying no to distractions and just staying focused on one thing. So I've basically stayed focused on one thing for 10 years now and it, it pays off. 
Um, yeah. It can also feel mundane. It's like the boring, we have done this a million times. It's like the doing the boring work. And that's how you get good at something. Like Olympic level athletes aren't doing four sports. They're doing one sport for years and years and years and years. So I think one of the biggest challenges is um, staying disciplined and focused while also allowing myself to be creative. Like right now I'm exploring more YouTube as a way to produce content and I'm enjoying learning about it. It's a, I can share similar messages, but in a new way and learning about B-roll and like getting this all set up and right. it's been fun. Yeah. So I think that uh, that balance between creativity and focus is always continues to be a challenge for me. And I think the creativity it comes from building up that muscle memory uh, because as things get easier for you to do, then you have more capacity and more bandwidth to be able to do more creative thinking. So that's why, like, uh, just to come up with a brief and kind of, um, well, I mean, I'm known for unusual examples, so here we go. But like when people play competitive video games, uh, you have to spend a lot of time practicing your skills, being able to hit your targets, being able to time things out, be able to read your opponents. And I, I mean, I can say that it is true in, in, in combat sports uh, as well. And the creativity comes out because you've had all of this opportunity to build up your basics. And once they're in that unconscious level where it just comes naturally to you, then you, you're, you're free thinking and you're adapting to the situation, which is how you win. So you know, even, even in sport, creativity still goes a long way. Um, but with that, Greg, I definitely had more stuff uh, prepared, but um, I've used up enough of your time, so I'm going to uh, let you go. If you had any other reactions or thoughts or points you wanted to make anything lingering in your mind feel free to make it and then let the audience know how they might go about finding where you are online i'm all good i appreciate your time and gregfaxon.com is the home base for everything so a lot of free resources there uh the niche quiz gregfaxon.com slash quiz and then if you search greg faxon coaching contracts you'll also see that article if you wanted to learn more about that uh, with that, I am going to uh, let everybody go for today. This has been a wonderful conversation. I've yet to not have a great conversation. It really has been a fascinating project and experience for me. And very happy to be here and be able to do this. And as with all of you listening right now, if this is your first time listening or if it's uh, you've listened to every episode, for that I say thank you. It's the Impactful Coaching Podcast. Our goal is to make sure that whatever niche you're working in, whatever help you're providing to others, we want you to be impactful while you're at it. 